0: welcome to the nen valley vineyard podcast what you're about to listen to is some teaching from our sunday services we're a church made up of people from wellingborough through to and spread across the nen valley and beyond if you want to know more about us or find out how to get involved visit our website which is nenvalley.church or you can find us on facebook and instagram at nen valley vineyard Uh, yeah, if I'm not holding this close enough, wave because I know that I might not be. Uh, so yeah, I'm Nick. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, well, I've here we've been here for about three years. We worked it out the other day. Uh, my wife's Teliola, who led us in communion, and most of the noise and the running around was our four children. So, uh, but I've been asked to preach today on on hope of new justice. Uh, following on from the talk uh, that Tom gave last week, The Nations Will Bow, and also Angie's talk on Emmanuel a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And as, sorry, that's my tablet doing its wonderful thing. I should have put this on paper, shouldn't I? Uh, These three talks are all intended to deal with some of the content in the first 26 chapters of Isaiah, uh, which is actually a fair chunk to try and cover in in three, three talks. Uh, And uh, when I was asked to do this, uh, Tom joked that he'd given it to the law lecturer because my day job uh, is talking and writing about law, which uh, I know doesn't sound like a real job. Uh, It does mean I like tiered seating, though, but I'm on my own. So, (laughs) Uh, so, uh, but no, it is a real job sometimes, particularly when marking comes in. Uh, I can have 400 student essays land and my job is to kind of assess those Uh, but law so yeah we joked that having asked me to talk about justice was kind of my wheelhouse because I'm the law lecturer one of the things that I struggle to get through to first year law students is the idea that law and justice are not in any way the same thing Uh, if anyone's ever had anything to do with the law a victim of crime a parking ticket a dispute, you'll probably know that the law is not very good at serving up justice. Uh, Les Green, there's a a quote that will come up, because I'm an academic, so I like quotes. Uh, Les Green writes, the fact that a policy would be just, wise, efficient, or prudent is never sufficient reason for thinking that it is actually the law. And the fact that it is unjust, unwise, inefficient, or imprudent is never sufficient reason for doubting it. According to positivism, law is a matter of what has been posited. That means ordered, decided, practiced, tolerated. Uh, as we might say in a more modern idiom, a positivism is the view that law is a social construction. Uh, so law is stuff that men have made up. Uh, and justice is what God does. And quite simply, uh, we're not capable of justice because we're fallen. Uh, there's an image on the slides of uh, the wooden. There you go. Uh, so this is an image that's often used to express ideas of law, equity, and justice. Uh, law is essentially moving the boxes around. Uh, the the fence, the barrier to being able to watch the baseball game, is an injustice. Is the injustice that we experience because we're part of a fallen world. The boxes are the law. Uh, You might look at the first picture and think, well, that's an all right law. Everybody's got the same amount of stuff. We've shared it out. That's one answer. A better law might redistribute the boxes differently so that everybody gets to see the baseball game. That's as far as law can go. Uh, And if you're anything like me, uh, and you work in your own strength, you've probably spent an awful lot of time moving the boxes around before realising that you can't remove the fence yourself. The fence going is justice. That is what God does. Okay? So God can do justice, man can just shuffle the boxes around. Uh, And if we stick with my analogy of me moving the boxes around, the only way that I can actually achieve anything is to get on my knees and pray. Uh, We're fallen humans. Uh, So... In a fallen world without divine intervention, we can't experience justice. Uh, And as fallen humans, we have imperfect laws. So there are uh, quotes I use in my teaching. For example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, (coughs) said, reminded us to never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. That was the law. Uh, He also wrote, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Mahatma Gandhi, who qualified as a lawyer in 1891, uh, I didn't teach him, also had plenty to say about law, including an unjust law is itself a species of violence, arrest for it, if for its breach is more so. So, as Tom preached last week, the world is fallen. It is an unjust and corrupt world. And injustice spreads like fire. Again, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So God is a God of justice. We exist as fallen people in a fallen world. And therefore, the world by its very nature is unjust. Uh, so God, in contrast, is perfect, and he is a God of justice. In Isaiah 61.8, we are told, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And we are commanded to act justly. God's commandment to us is to act with justice. In Micah 6.8, we're told, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Okay, so two weeks ago, uh, Angie preached uh, on the subject of Emmanuel, and she preached about the old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem as a place of injustice, a place of corruption. Uh, And God is a place of justice. So necessarily, by my uh, fallible workings out, injustice is the lack of God. The old Jerusalem is an absence of God. Now, to be absolutely clear, God never absented himself from the world and he never absented himself from us. We and the world absented themselves of God. God is immovable. God was always there. God was, is always there. God is always justice. But we absented ourselves, Angie quoted in her preaching from 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, to remind us that whilst we absented ourselves from God, God never absented himself from us. So when we pray for justice, when we pray for God to intervene in our lives, we are praying for God's divine justice to come down and touch us, to touch our injustice, to touch this imperfect world to touch us, and to touch our circumstances. And when God answers prayer, we experience justice. So, God reaches out with his hand and touches this imperfect world. And he touches us with compassion, and he touches us with justice. Uh, And in Isaiah, that idea of of God's hand uh, is mentioned a lot. I found five references in Isaiah, to God upraising his hand. And all of them have the same phrase. Uh, Yeah, I'm making the slide guys work today. There are five references across several slides. They'll just move behind me, I'm sure. But all of them have the same phrase in them. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And in the New Living Translation, his hand being upraised is translated as his fist is still poised to strike in anger. His fist is still poised to strike in anger. It is not striking in anger. It is rested. It is poised. In Isaiah 9.12, God was angry with the northern kingdom of Israel. God had repeatedly called on them to repent. They persisted in worshipping false idols. They persisted in turning their back on God, in absenting themselves from his. Yet God held his anger, his hand remained upraised. And let's be clear, this is God being patient. Uh, And let's also be clear, uh, we all need God's patience. I need God's patience. I will need God's patience before, probably before the end of this morning, let alone the end of today. Uh, God raising up his hand and holding back And being patient with us while we learn to repent uh, is what God does. Uh, He promises judgment. He does promise judgment in Isaiah 5.25 on the southern kingdom of Israel. And this is repeated. But we have a patient God who gives repeated opportunities to repent. And what is clear through Isaiah, and Tom talked about this last week, 14 kingdoms come under God's judgment, I think was what Tom said. He's going to nod in a second. Yeah, there you go. Uh, in all of those instances, God knew whether or not repentance was going to come. God knew in advance whether or not those kingdoms were going to repent. And despite the fact he knew, and despite the fact he was angry, he weighted his hand and he gave the opportunity to repent. Uh, and Tom, Tom argued, quite convincingly I felt, that in the context of those nations, we should welcome God's judgment. But Tom was also very clear that judgment is not wrath. So often when we hear people talk about judgment, we hear people talk about wrath, we hear people talk about condemnation. And judgment is neither wrath nor condemnation. Because justice requires judgment. And if we're asking for justice, if we're asking for God to reach out his hand... We are asking for God to judge. We're not asking for wrath and we're not asking for condemnation. And I'll come back to that. But what does God do when he stretches out his hand? Uh, Telly spoke about this uh, in her testimony before communion. Uh, He stretches out his hand to create. I've got a list on one of the slides. Uh, in Acts 7.50, we are reminded, Has not my hand made all things? God stretches out his hand to control all things. In Psalms 95:4, the psalmist says, In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains also. In Psalms one hundred and four verse twenty eight, we are told that God opens his hand, or sorry, when God opens his hand, we are filled with good things. Because God reaches out his hand to satisfy, God reaches out his hand to sustain every living thing. God reaches out to protect us. In Ezra eight thirty-one, we are told the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. God reaches out to secure success for his people. I don't know if you were fortunate enough to stay here last week when we had Victor's birthday party after the service, but we were treated to testimony after testimony after testimony of how success had fallen uh, on members of Victor's family because of faithfulness, because God had reached his hand into their lives. Uh, There is a beautiful promise... Uh, in Isaiah 41:10 Fear not for I am with you be not dismayed for I am your God I will strengthen you I will help you I will uphold you with my righteous hand So yeah you know, we are promised that incredible promise that God's hand is there to to assist us in everything God reached out his hand to redeem Israel from Egypt Throughout Scripture, God reaches out his hand to rescue his people. Psalms 138, 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. So, God is angry in Isaiah 9, 12, but he offers the opportunity to repent He holds up his hand to give the northern kingdom of Israel the opportunity to receive his justice. And although when they ignore this opportunity, he does stretch out his hand in judgment, he is also merciful. And we are reminded of God's patient mercy later in Isaiah. So in Isaiah Isaiah 65, 2, we are told, All day long I have held out my hand to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Uh, And that promise is repeated in, in Romans 10. So God is a God of judgment, but he has a loving, kind and merciful purpose in his judgment. He is bringing his people to fellowship with him. He's bringing us closer to him through repentance. So when God stayed his hand in Isaiah and gave them the opportunity to repent, It was an invitation to come closer to God, to enjoy God's fellowship. Uh, Hebrews 12, 6 to 7, we are told that because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone, he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Uh, And believe me, I know from my own experience, uh, that sometimes I need to be humbled. I need to be brought to my knees uh, before I seek the presence of God. Uh, Teleola has uh, some of those wifely phrases that nobody else would get away with telling you. But uh, sometimes when I'm being particularly arrogant and particularly in my own strength and things aren't going my way, she will tell me, God's just trying to get your attention, Nick. Get on your knees, surrender this. Uh, and don't tell her I said this because she's doing kids at the moment but she's right uh, <laughs> so Angie started this series on Isaiah on the subject of Emmanuel which literally means God with us that is God touching us God reaching out his hand and involving himself in our lives uh And Emmanuel is another name for Christ, the ultimate reaching out of God to earth, sending his own son uh, to save us, his own son, a child to lead us, his own son sent uh, to die for us. is a huge amount of reaching into the world to deliver his justice. And this means that the hope of justice, as Tom preached last week, is a hope to be citizens in the strong city, the city of hope, the city of joy, and the city of purpose. But in order to be citizens of the strong city, uh, we need to invite, to welcome the judgment of the lofty city, the old Jerusalem. Uh, As Tom spoke about it, it needs to become a city of ashes. In order for the strong city to rise... The New Jerusalem, the old city must be reduced to ashes. And Tom did refer to Isaiah 24, uh, despite the fact it being part of my preach uh, we've had words. Uh, but in Isaiah 24, we are promised that God will lay waste to the earth. So this justice of nation, nations, requires a judgment of nations. We cannot have the justice of the strong city before we have had the judgment of the lofty city. Uh, and you know, so, But Isaiah is not only, I would argue, prophesying to nations. He is also prophesying to people. So he's not only saying what is justice for nations and what is judgment for nations, but he's prophesying to you, to me, to all of us. Uh, So Tom did a pretty good job of arguing that the judgment of nations was desirable, was something that we wanted. Uh, And he's left me the job uh, of trying to convince you that seeking God's judgment in our own lives is also desirable. And that's not an easy thing to do, because judgment is a word that carries a lot of weight. Uh, Some of you will have heard people say, don't judge me. That sounds judgy. I don't want to be judged. Let me be me. Uh, but judgment is something that is desirable. As I've already said, judgment is not wrath. And judgment is not condemnation. Romans 8.1, we are told unequivocally, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, however, judgment, okay? So, has anyone seen the film, The Usual Suspects? I'm showing my age now. There we go, Carrie, thank you. And what is the greatest trick we're told the devil ever pulled? Yes, thank you. The final line of the film, the greatest gift the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure I have to agree. Certainly one of the greatest tricks the devil's ever pulled and something that I've experienced a lot, and I'm sure we all have, is that we are not worthy of God's forgiveness, that we are too bad, that we have done something too wrong that we cannot be saved. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was that we are beyond God's redemption. That is condemnation. Condemnation is not from God. And if we feel condemnation, then that is not of God's doing. That is part of the fallen world. And we can ask again for God's justice to reach out uh, and touch us. And we are not subject to condemnation because... As Telly told us during communion, Christ was broken for us. Divine justice has been served. Does anyone remember The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? We're not doing all my favourite films here. (laughs) I preferred the BBC TV series, but the Disney movie's not bad. The book's all right. Uh, No, (laughs) the book's brilliant. Uh, Sometimes I like to watch my books. Uh, Aslan the lion negotiated with the white witch who had taken control of Narnia. Uh, One of the children in the story, Edmund, had sworn allegiance to the white witch, just as we have all turned against God at some point. Uh, Aslan negotiated with the white witch and traded his life for Edmund's. Aslan was humiliated, his mane was shaved, he was tied to the stone table, which had existed since the dawn of time, and was executed there. And the White Witch admitted that once she had done that, she was going to kill Edmund anyway, so it was all pointless. Uh, two of the children, Lucy and Susan, went to visit Aslan after he was dead, just like Mary and Martha visiting the tomb after Jesus was laid to rest. Uh And I'm going to read a quote from the book. So, at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round, there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before. Shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that although the witch knew the deep magic there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incarnation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. C.S. Lewis was a Christian. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is intended to be a book that teaches us about the Bible. So I'm not drawing my own analogies here. Uh, They're his. But the magic from the dawn of time is the laws of man. The rules that we can create, the rules that we can live by, and the rules by which we can condemn ourselves. The magic before time is divine justice. And divine justice was served when Christ was broken on the cross for us. So condemnation is something we may feel under the law. Condemnation is something that we may feel because we understand the laws from the beginning of time, or the social constructs of law, but divine justice has been served. We therefore... As Romans told us, are under no condemnation. So I'm not trying to convince anybody that God's wrath or any form of condemnation is something we should seek, but I am trying to seek, I'm trying to convince you that what you want to seek is his judgment. Because justice requires judgment. Uh, Tom preached that the oppression of the world is what justice ends. In order For justice to be served, we need judgment. In order to recognize oppression, to label it, and for it to be diminished, it needs to be judged. The judgment, however, that Isaiah is prophesizing is described by the Hebrew word mishpat, which means assessment and repair. It perhaps doesn't mean judgment in the way that we have come to understand the word judgment assessment and repair, so I told you that part of my job is marking essays giving students feedback on their work. I have to judge my students and I have some good students and I have some less good students and I can tell you that the better students when they hand in work for me to look at, when they bring me an essay, whether or not it's graded, will want my feedback. They will ask for my assessment. And they will take that feedback and they will look at it. And they will learn from it. And the better students will change and they will improve and they will get better. There are other students who will argue with me that my grading is wrong that my judgment is wrong, that they don't welcome my feedback, that they're not interested in what I've got to say, Uh, and they will go and they will do another piece of work for another lecturer and it will be rubbish. And they will get the same feedback and they will have the same response and they will not improve and they will not change and they will not develop. Uh, And God's judgment is assessment. God is staying his hand in Isaiah. He is waiting. He is waiting and giving us an opportunity to repent. And we are able to invite his judgment. And when we invite his judgment in that way, we are inviting his assessment and his repair. We are inviting God to give us feedback, to tell us where we fall short and how we can improve. And let's let's be clear, good feedback is not, this essay is a pile of junk. Good feedback is not God's condemnation of your screwing it all up, although I am. God's feedback is, this is precisely where you've gone wrong and this is what you need to do to improve. It is clear, good feedback. Better feedback than you'll get from any tutor, but that is what good feedback looks like. How do I improve? How do I get better next time? How do I change? Uh, so judgment is the act of a judge, in this case God, and he offers us the opportunity to receive his feedback, uh, his assessment. And that is what is happening when his hand is still upraised. He is waiting, he is giving us the opportunity to reflect, to learn, to improve. Uh and as I've already said, God knew that the kingdom of Israel would ignore the offer to repent before he stayed his hand. He knows that some of us will ignore the opportunity to repent. All of us will ignore the opportunity to repent sometimes, I'm sure. Uh, but he stays his hand and he gives us that opportunity patiently and in justice, because one of the tenets of justice is that it's extended fairly to us all. Uh So, Taliola led us in communion earlier, uh, and William read from 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm just going to read again, and I think it's on the slide as well, the bit from 27 to 32. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep but if you were more discerning with regard sorry if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves we would not come under such judgment nevertheless when we are judged in this way by the lord we are dis, being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world So, this discernment in judging ourselves, I believe, is a discernment in reflecting on the feedback from God. The opportunity to discern what God is saying to us and to take his advice on how we improve. Uh, Which doesn't, to me, sound like a bad thing to be offered. Uh, And the final sentence of that passage tells us that if we accept this... Discipline, we will not be condemned with the world. And if we are not condemned with the world, we're invited to the banquet in the strong city. It's what Tom told us. It's also what the Bible tells us, which is nothing personal, Tom. But uh, (laughs) uh, And that's the hope of justice. That is the hope of justice. The banquet in the strong city to be forever with our father, feasting on the best meats and drinking aged wines. And I like meat and wine, as you can tell. Uh, So, the world with God's judgment is a world that enjoys his favour and order. The world as it is, is not a world of order. It's not a world of God's favour. It's a world that is falling apart, and we can see that. Inviting God's judgment into the world is inviting the designer and creator of the universe to bring order to his design. Uh, And our lives are also lives that can enjoy God's favour and order. But our lives without God's favour and order fall apart. Isaiah uses the example of the drunken mob. Okay? So, yes, we can all sit and feast and eat and drink aged wines with God but we can also be part of the drunken mob. Uh, And many of us will know people who fit that analogy, some of us will have been people that fit that analogy. Those people who look forward to drink at the weekend, those people who look forward to the end of work because they're gonna get hammered. Uh, And as I say, many of us have been there. The world is falling apart, our lives are falling apart, our lives are in chaos. We, in our own strength, know that we can't do anything about it. And many of us will have felt that. And therefore, being part of the drunken mob is attractive. Because you can ignore pain. It's painless. It's joyless. It's little bits of death. Uh, But many of us seek that before we find God. Many of us slide into it after we've found God. But that's the drunken mob that Isaiah is talking about. The world spiralling out of control, knowing full well that in our own strength, our lives are without order. Our lives are problematic and we need to numb ourselves. Because there is nothing that we can do. Uh, However, there is something that we can do and that is the promise of Isaiah. And that is not in our own strength. That is not moving boxes around to try and find a worldly justice. That is getting on our knees and inviting God to bring justice and order into our lives. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to do the, the informal bit, ask you to get into groups and, and pray to finish. Uh, and I want us to pray together for justice and therefore for God's assessment in our lives. Uh, But first of all, I'm just going to draw another analogy. So, you know, we want order in lots of things that happen in our lives. We want to invite God to bring order to our lives. And many of us pray for the end, for the thing that we want, ordered, justified lives. There is a process to this, a process of judgment. Uh, I know, I'm... I've done this, I'm going to use the analogy or the example of finances. So, at certain parts in my life, my prayer life has been essentially a very brief prayer. You know, the bit of prayer between when you enter your PIN number and you wonder whether or not it's going to go through. That's how I run my finances. Uh, At certain points, I've been in quite a bit of debt. Uh, Our family finances at certain points were a mess, Uh, and we did the Christians Against Poverty course, which is brilliant, thank you Caroline, Uh, and we are invited as part of that course to bring, to open our accounts, ourselves, not to everybody, but an assessment to look through what our spending is, to look through what our income is, to see where money's going out, to see where money's coming in to assess and evaluate our finances, and then to invite God's order and God's favour in them. And it works. But it works because there's a process to it. It wouldn't work were we to say, absolutely, my finances are fine, I'm not going to change my spending, I don't even know what I earn, I'm just going to pray for God's favour and order on my finances without bothering to invite the order and assessment. We need to open the books to God. We need to understand what's going on in our lives, invite his feedback, act on that feedback, and then we receive God's favour and justice. Uh, So we need to open the books to God. As I said, I'm going to ask you to get into groups uh, and pray uh, for as long as, as you wish, and then that's kind of the end of it, and you can Remember to pick up your children. Uh, If you want some spares, you can have mine. Uh, But just like I said, if we open, we're opening the books to God. So I want us to get into groups, uh, which is great. We've got the setup to do that now. I want us to have the opportunity to ask other people to pray for us. But I will reiterate, you know, when, and I'm going to use the analogy again, I didn't show my bank statements to anybody else. I didn't open the books to the whole church. I didn't show them to other people. We are entitled to privacy. I'm not asking you to share the deeper meaningfuls of your entire life or your failings. I'm asking you, I'm giving you the opportunity to ask for prayer. So please, you know, respect your own privacy, respect everybody else's privacy. But come together in groups of three or four uh, and do that hope for justice thing, what God invites us to do, inviting God to touch, reach out his hand and touch our lives with justice, with the understanding that that involves asking for his feedback, his assessment, and prompting him to encourage us and to tell us how to improve. And that is not an invitation to God's wrath or God's condemnation, because they are not of God. Well, thanks so much for listening to this teaching from Nen Valley Vineyard. We pray it blesses you and produces good fruit in you. If we can connect to you or help you engage with our community, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via our website, which is nenvalley.church.